We, we are in Isaiah chapter 53 today. And I told Wayne and I told the elder presiding over communion, in this case it was Ernie, that I needed all my time. And I do need all my time. If you're a note taker, you might want to sharpen your pencil. If you're not a note taker, catch as much as you can. And then you can go up on the website and you can download it and listen to anything that maybe you thought you caught or you didn't catch or something like that. But would you stand with me? We're going to read the 12 verses of Isaiah chapter 53 together. Many of them are familiar. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her sharers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. And he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. And he will divide the spoils with the strong. Because he poured out his life unto death. And was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many. And made intercession for the transgressors. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the power of your word. And now I invite the presence of the Holy Spirit to come. And anoint not just the words that I say, but the ears that hear and the hearts that are sitting here, Father God. I pray that you would bring the full impact of your word into our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Isaiah ministered during the the reigns of Uzziah and Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah and Manasseh. Uh, It was actually quite a long time. Uh, it would have started somewhere around 740 years before Christ was born uh, and would have lasted at least until 687 years before Christ was born because that was when Manasseh became king. 
Now, the legend is that Manasseh actually had Isaiah killed, that that Isaiah died really on the pretext of the passage that we were in last week, chapter 6, because he said, I saw the Lord. And Moses had said, no one can see the Lord and live. And so Manasseh figured he would do the work for the Lord, who he didn't worship at the time. And Isaiah was martyred. Uh, as a very old man, late in life. The reason I have a telescope up there, I mentioned in the offering that my parents had given me quite a heritage. One of the things that I remember my father saying over and over and over again during the several hundred times that I heard him preach, uh, if not several thousand, was Isaiah, the great prophet, looked down through the telescope of time and saw the coming of the Messiah. 700 years before Christ was born. And he did say that over and over, and it's true. When I was in Zimbabwe and I was teaching in the Bible school, one of the classes that I taught was the major prophets. And uh, the major prophets are, are pretty amazing And Isaiah, that was when I really fell in love with the book of Isaiah. This chapter in particular, obviously it's where I'm going to get to, but one of the things that makes Isaiah so great, apart from his unforgettable poetry and his involvement with Hezekiah during the the Assyrian invasion, we talked about that a few weeks ago, is that he was given remarkable insight concerning Messiah. A lot of what we know about Messiah came from Isaiah. In chapter 7 is where we learn about the virgin birth. Now, if you haven't actually read that passage, let me just say this. If you turn there and you read it, you may go, really? Because it's not abundantly clear that, that he's talking about the coming of Messiah. Matthew is the one who makes that clear for us, and that's scripture as well. So sometimes prophecies are, are a little bit cryptic on the surface, but that's where we learn about the virgin birth. In chapter 9 is that magnificent passage, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Then in chapter 61 is where we get the commission of Messiah. When Jesus came to his hometown and they gave him the scroll, he turned to the prophet. Well, he didn't turn, you don't turn a scroll, but he, he, he went to the prophet Isaiah and he found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And so there's a lot in Isaiah. This is just, just three that I'm touching on. But actually in, in chapters 52 and 53, he begins to reveal this, this guy called a suffering servant. And he's not actually called the suffering servant in chapter 53. That's back in 52 where, where it actually starts. For a long time, the, uh, the scribes and, and the priests, as they studied the scripture, will look at this passage and were, were really puzzled by it. And they thought, well, maybe, maybe there, maybe there's two that are coming. Uh, maybe there's a Messiah who's coming, but then there's this other guy called the suffering servant. What they didn't understand is, uh, no, there's one who's coming twice. And the first time he comes, he comes as a suffering servant. The next time he comes, he comes as king of kings and lord of lords to rule and to reign. Uh, but chapter 53 of Isaiah, which only has 12 verses in it, 
is just the most amazing chapter in the entire Bible. Especially when you consider that this was written at least 700 years before most of the stuff happened. And I mean, if you stop and think about 700 years, we're talking about what, 1400? Uh, we're talking about 100 years before uh, Columbus sailed the ocean blue from when we are right now. So uh, 700 years is a long, 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 long time. And in this particular passage that we just read, there are over 30 things. If you count the theological facts that are revealed, there are over 30 things that Isaiah nails about Messiah. I mean, just absolutely spot on puts it on there. And so I don't really know how anybody can actually seriously look at this chapter and not believe and not go, wow, the Bible is, is true. Uh, and when I say over 30, I, it's hard to put an exact number on it. Uh, you know, for example, where it says that he's despised and rejected, is that one thing or is that two things? Well, it's, it's probably two things, but there are several different ways to count this, but certainly over 30. And what I'm going to do today is we're just going to, we're going to blitz through it. I've got about a minute and a half or a minute and 20 seconds that I can average spending on each one. But let's get started. The first thing that he, that Isaiah reveals in, in verse one is who has believed our report. When Messiah comes, when the one that everybody is looking for comes, nobody's going to believe it's him. So the first thing that he, that he tells us about Messiah is that when Messiah comes, not everybody's going to go, yippee, Messiah's here. In fact, the truth of the matter is most of them are going to go, that, that's not him. When the arm of the Lord is revealed, they're not going to see it. And then in verse two, he begins to <clears throat> reveal some specific things about him. He grew up before him like a tender shoot. Messiah started out in the most vulnerable condition. Who would have thought that when Messiah comes, he would, well, I mean, you might think, yeah, he'd be born. I mean, most, we probably had this image that he was just going to come falling down out of the sky and, and rule things. But okay, we can buy that he's going to be born, but, but born like this? Born to parents of no reputation, born in a, a place that, in a cave somewhere, grew up before him like a tender shoot. And when we say tender, he wasn't just your average ordinary baby. I mean, he was born into a time when infant mortality was high. He was born into not very sanitary circumstances. He was born in a situation where as soon as the king of the country found out that he had been born, he tried to kill him. And sent troops in uh, within the first two years of his life to kill all the boys in that area. A, a tender shoot is something that can pretty easily be snuffed out. And that's the way the kingdom of God often is. The kingdom of God starts out very, very small. And in fact, the kingdom of God on this earth started out as two cells inside of a virgin. Ultimately being born. And yet... The kingdom of God that starts out small grows and grows and grows. And the things of the world that look so impressive decay and decay and decay. Move in the opposite direction. But he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. The, the, the circumstances into which he would come would be desperate on many levels. Um, 
personally for the family, I suspect that they were probably pretty desperate. I mean, if you were, if you were newlyweds or well, actually I would, uh, yeah, they were newlyweds, but if you, if you were newlyweds and you had a, a secret <laughs> that you didn't want people to find out, it was going to be very embarrassing once they did find out. And then God made an opportunity for you to leave everything that you had and move to someplace that you didn't know. I mean, these are, these are kind of desperate circumstances for the family, but the country. I mean, think of the situation he was born into. Roman occupation. They, they were under, the, the whole country was basically enslaved at the time that he was born. And think of the spiritual climate into which he was born. I mean, this, the, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, are you kidding me? The Sadducees were some of the major spiritual leaders of the day. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in heaven. I don't know what they did believe in other than their own power and the fact that, well, they believed in tithing. You know, they, they, they did believe in that, but not much else. And, and the Pharisees who had this legalistic attitude that basically went, I'm a Pharisee and you are not. That was the climate that he was born into. And Isaiah said, he's going to be, he's going to be born into a, a place that's like, it's like dry ground. And then he also goes on to say that he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. He would not use the world's methods to attract us to him. In spite of the artistic renderings that we, that we see of, uh, of the Christ, and I'm cool with them because artistic renderings aren't supposed to be photographs. Uh, They can be, but they don't go, this is what it looked like. They go, this is what it actually was. And what it actually was and what it actually looked like were oftentimes two very, very different things. On Wednesday nights, I'm teaching a class on leadership, which you can download uh, from the website. Those of you who have not been fortunate enough to... uh, be among the few, we happy few. Uh, but uh, <clears throat> the reason why I really felt like I needed to teach a class on leadership and was called to do that is because most people today, even in the church, the only way they know to identify a leader is by beauty and majesty. Charisma. If they got that charisma, if they got that image, if they got that thing, they must be a leader. Wrong. And that's been very, very damaging to the body of Christ. And so that's why I thought, I need to teach a class that kind of goes, this is really what you're supposed to look for. These are the godly characteristics of a leader. But when Messiah came, he didn't come in such a way He didn't come in such a form that people would look at him and go, this must be him. No. And in the gate, I actually was sharing about this a couple of weeks ago. And I asked the question or made the point that if he didn't attract people to him by beauty or majesty, what did he use? What attracted people to him? Love. Absolutely. He attracted people... To him by the fact that he loved so much, that he gave, that he that he was unlike anyone they had ever seen before. 
Isaiah tells us that when Messiah comes, that he would be a man of sorrows and familiar with sufferings. Um, You wouldn't necessarily think that of Messiah. I mean, they were looking for a Messiah. You know, when Messiah comes, he'll rock. When Messiah comes, he'll have all this power and all this glory. I mean, wow, wouldn't it be a fine thing to be Messiah? Well, he's going to be a man of sorrows and familiar with sufferings. Obviously, he knew about death. Uh, there's no mention of Joseph once he's an adult, so I suspect that, that his, his father, or the man who raised him anyway, had passed on. So he, he experienced that, just as some of us experience it. But not only that, I think probably what cuts even deeper and even harder and brings more sorrow into our lives than having someone close to us pass away, I mean, we know that's going to happen at some point in time, but is betrayal. And people that are supposed to be close to us and people who are supposed to have our back turning on us. And did Jesus know about that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And we're not just talking about Judas who betrayed him. You know, Judas was only one of his 12 closest friends who sold him for money. But we're also talking about Peter, who was one of his three closest friends, who at the time of his most desperate need said, I don't know that guy. I have no idea who he is. You, you, you think I know him? No, no way. I don't know him. I'm not one of those crazies. Messiah would be a man of sorrow, familiar with suffering. Isaiah knew this 700 years before it happened. And I've actually, uh, I, I must have erased a slide that I intended to put up there. So somebody remind me, I'll do it in the second service, because despised and rejected is one that is also in verse 3 that obviously I, I didn't put in there. But he wasn't just, he wasn't just unrecognized. He, he was rejected. I mean, he told people who he was. It was pretty clear who he was. Now, he didn't necessarily come out and go, I have an announcement to make, ladies and gentlemen. I am the Messiah, because that wouldn't, that wouldn't have worked very well. But for anybody who had ears to hear, for anybody who was willing to listen, it was very clear who he was claiming to be. I mean, he claimed to, be, he claimed to exist before Abraham existed. Even his, even his enemies knew who he was claiming to be, and ultimately that was the pretext that they used for sending him to the cross, it's because he said that he was the Holy One, the Son of God. His claim was rejected and he was despised. And it, and it even says over in John chapter 7, verse 5, that his own brothers didn't believe in him. His own family didn't believe in him. Isaiah knew this 700 years before. And then later on in, in, in verse 3, it says, like one from whom men hide his fa- their faces, we won't want to see him. And I've got a lot of examples I can use here, but I'm I'm not really going to basically use any of them because uh, because I've used them before and I don't have a lot of time. Uh, well, I, I will use I will use one. My parents used to, <clears throat> you know, they they basically always pastored in, in small churches, and 
what my dad was really great at doing, my mom and dad was coming in, taking a church of 12 people and building it up to a church of about 100, 120 people. That, that was really what they were good at doing. And they would have a lot of young families. They would have a lot of uh, new people come in and, and most of them were not very high up on the socioeconomic scale. And and they would lend money to people. Uh, you you know, after a while, you learn some you learn some lessons. And and one of the lessons that I learned, basically, by watching my parents, is if you know, if you need money and I got it, I'll give it to you. But I'm not going to lend it to you because if you can't pay me back, then you're going to leave, and you're not going to want to see me anymore. I, I'm the last person you're going to want to see if you owe me money because that's the way that it works. Who knew that when Messiah, everybody's thinking, oh, I want to see him. I would love to see Messiah. And Isaiah's saying 700 years before the fact, no, it's not going to be that way. Actually, he's going to be like the person that you see as you walk down the row at Walmart and you go, oh, I'm going this way. That's what he's going to be like. Who saw that coming? Isaiah saw it coming. 700 years before it happened. And then also uh, in verse 3 it says that we esteemed him not. He will be lightly regarded. Uh, to esteem is to value. He was heaven's greatest treasure. And yet when he came to us, we had absolutely no no use for him, no value for him. The world system looked at him and went, we'd be a whole lot better off without this guy. One of my favorite verses over in John is actually spoken from the mouth of Caiaphas. Uh, it's John chapter 11, after Jesus has raised uh, Lazarus from the dead and the word is brought back to the officials and they're going, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Every, everybody's believing in this guy now. We got to do something about this. And Caiaphas goes, just a minute. You, you don't understand that it would be better for the nation, for one man to die, than for all the people to die. And he's thinking we would be a whole lot better off without this guy because if people go after him, the Romans are going to come after us and everybody's going to die. And the Holy Spirit says, he didn't know what he was saying. But his high priest this year, that year, he prophesied that Christ would die so that everybody else could live. But the world regarded him lightly. Chapter, well, verse 4, it feels like a whole chapter. Verse 4, he took up our infirmities. He, will sh- he, would, sh- he would share our weaknesses. He got thirsty like we get thirsty. He got hungry like we get hungry. He, he stubbed his toe, it would hurt, just like if you stub your toe, you would hurt. If he walked a long way, he would get tired too. He, he took the infirmities that we had, the fallen physical body. And then also he goes on to say, he carried our sorrows. The things that cause us grief caused him grief also. So it's not like, you know, and this is probably good for us to know. Because it's not like Jesus came to earth and he goes, well, I'm God and I just need to hang out here for 33 years. And, 
you know, uh, well, that's a bummer, but hey, I'm God, you know. And I think sometimes we kind of get that, that feeling, that impression that, that that's the way we're supposed to live, right? Cause that's the way, no, the, the things that broke, that breaks our hearts broke his heart. He experienced it just like us. And then it goes on to say that we considered him stricken by God. We thought that he was getting what he deserved. We, we thought he was dying on the cross because he, he blasphemed. And we're so quick to carry out God's judgment, especially when we're wrong in a situation. When the high priest questioned Jesus and said, tell us plainly, are you the Christ, the Holy One of God? And he said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his robes and went, we don't need to hear anything else. Let's go kill him now. He's getting what he deserved. When he was hanging on the cross, people weren't, people weren't standing around going, surely this is the son of God. Yeah. I mean, later on at the, at, after the earthquake and the darkness and everything came along, we got a report of one guy saying it. Most of them were coming along saying, ha ha ha. Let's see what you can do now, big boy. Come down from the cross. We'll believe in you. Who saw that coming? Isaiah did. Said we would believe that he was getting what he deserved. Verse 5. He was pierced. He was crushed. Pierced by the nails, obviously. Which were not always used. And and this is where it kind of gets, this is where it gets amazing to me. Because Jesus could have absolutely no control over how they were going to kill him. Could have absolutely no control over how this was going to go down. And yet Isaiah describes it. He's going to be pierced. They didn't always use nails in crucifixion. In fact, most of the time they didn't. This was just a little added indignity. Hey, I got an idea. They didn't always pierce the side of the people hanging on the cross. But 700 years before it happened, Isaiah said, he'll be pierced and he'll be crushed. He'll fall under the, under the weight of the cross. And then it begins to get into some of the theological things. He was crushed for our iniquities. It wasn't for his guilt that he died. He wasn't getting what he deserved. He was getting what we deserve. His punishment brought our peace. Because of his passion, we can have peace with God. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Before it happened, before the gospel came, before the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to come along and explain it to us, what would you have thought that verse meant? The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. Who could have figured that out? And by his wounds, we are healed. Physical healing, yes. But the real need that we had, the real miracle that needed to take place in our life was wholeness. 
And when we come to the table of the Lord, one of the things that, that always weighs on my mind and weighs on my heart is this is my body broken for you. His body broken so that I can be made whole. And not just so that I can get healed when I get sick, but so I can be whole, so that I can be the same person at home that I am here, and the same person at work that I am here, and the same person with my wife in private as I am with my wife in public, and the same person, the same person, wherever I happen to be, a wholeness, a completeness there. Verse 6 says, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, he carried our infirmities because he took on a physical body. But our iniquities, our sin, had to be laid upon him. He didn't share in our sin. Theologically, Isaiah already knew this. He didn't share in our sins. He, He was without sin. And when it says the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all, you need to be aware that he was crucified for your sin, whether you forgive it or whether you accept the forgiveness or not. He, he was crucified for every sin that every person has ever committed or was ever going to commit, whether they accept that gift of forgiveness or not. He's already carried it. Verse 7, he was oppressed. His rights were denied. His rights were taken away from him. This is Messiah we're talking about. How's anybody going to take Messiah's rights away from him? Who, who could believe that would happen? And yet, 700 years before it did, did happen, Isaiah prophesied it. There's a book called uh, uh, Who Moved the Stone by a guy named uh, Frank Morrison. And uh, how, many, how many are familiar with that book? It's, it's kind of an old book. Uh, okay, well, let me tell you just very briefly about it because you may want to read it. Uh, Frank Morrison was a lawyer, and uh, I'm, I'm not sure that he's even still alive. He probably isn't. But he set out to write a book based on the scriptures, just going through it, doing a, a legal um, dissection, a legal analysis of everything that took place. And using that, he was going to disprove this whole thing about crucifixion, resurrection, blah, blah, blah. Uh, by the time he got to the end of the book, by the time he got through doing the research to write the book, of course, the whole thing had flipped around and he discovered, oh my goodness, this really did happen. And so he, he, he goes in and he does a, a, a legal research on it. One of the things that he does is he points out all the ways in which Messiah's rights were denied him. Uh, it was illegal for the council to hold a trial at night. Uh, it was illegal for the, the high priest to question the accused. Uh, it was illegal for them to condemn him without at least two witnesses being able to agree on what he had done. All the, but all these things were just blown over because he was oppressed. And Isaiah said that it was going to happen. And yet he did not open his mouth 
He would not try to defend himself against accusations. Now, he actually did say a few things, but none of the things, if you go back and you look, John in particular is where most of the information is. But if you go back and you look, nothing that he said was in defense of himself. I mean, Pilate finally asked him, you know, are you a king then? Are you the king of the Jews? And, and, uh, and Jesus said, well, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll answer that, but not going to answer any of these accusations that they're bringing against me. I'm not going to try to defend myself. Pilate was astonished that Jesus didn't speak up to defend himself. Uh, verse 8 says, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Literally, that means he'll be arrested and tried. When Messiah comes, not only will we not bow down and worship him and, and exalt him as our king, we'll arrest him and try him. 700 years before it happened. Verse 8 goes on to say, who can speak of his descendants, which literally means that he would have no, no natural offspring. There, there's much misinformation and speculation on this topic today, and mostly it involves the idea that the crucifixion was a hoax, but, but, but seriously. I mean, no one was expecting Messiah to be crucified anyway. It's not like Jesus and his, and his brilliant disciples sit down and plotted, now we've got to get this crucifixion thing together. How are we going to do it? Nobody was expecting it. So why do you hoax something that nobody's looking for to say, I'm Messiah? And he didn't have any natural law. He didn't have any children or not any secret kids hidden in the Vatican somewhere or anything. (laughs) Verse 8, be cut off from the land of the living. Literally, he would be killed. And then... Verse 9 is one of the most interesting of all. He said he would be assigned a grave with the wicked. You know, he did die among thieves. He was crucified uh, at a place where the criminals were, were put to death. There was a thief on his right hand, a thief on his left hand. What kind of control could he have over that? None whatsoever. And yet 700 years before it happened, Isaiah said, this is what's going to happen. But amazingly enough, not only is he going to be, he's going to be assigned a grave with the wicked, but he's going to be with the rich in his death. So he died in the middle of thieves, but he was buried in a rich man's tomb. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea came to Pilate, asked for the body of Jesus. Uh, Pilate gave it to him. He and Nicodemus took the body to the tomb and, and, and the scripture says that Joseph buried him in, in his own tomb. Not only did Jesus have no control over these matters, but as a general rule, um, condemned criminals weren't buried at all. Much less, I mean, what the, you know, well, you guys are far enough away from lunch. We can talk about it here. Literally, what usually happened is they, is they just left the bodies on the crosses to rot until the carrion birds took care of things. And yet Isaiah says, this guy's gonna, he's gonna, he's gonna die like a criminal, but he's gonna be buried like a rich man. Wow. 700 years before it took place. And all this is gonna happen to him, even though that there will be no violence nor deceit in him. He will hurt no one. He will speak falsely of no one. Falsely of nothing. Verse 10. It was the Lord's will to cause him to suffer. And while this is prophecy about Messiah, uh, I just want to 
mention here for just a minute. Sometimes it is the Lord's will for suffering to come. And I know that today there's teaching that we're not supposed to suffer, that Jesus suffered so we wouldn't have to suffer. I'm sorry, I know the Bible pretty well, but I, I don't think you can scripture and verse that. Chapter and verse that. What you can chapter and verse is no servant is greater than his master. They hated me, they'll hate you as well. In this world, you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. But why would it be God's will for us to suffer sometimes? Well, sometimes uh, the kingdom can be advanced. He can gain glory and eternity can be impacted through suffering. You know, if you've got a child and you never, ever, ever let any bad thing happen to that child, you're going to raise a wimp. You're going to raise a spoiled, rotten, no good. There's got to be some, there's got to be a little suffering. There's got to be some resistance. There's got to be some pain sometimes that comes into our lives. And, and, you know, I I know that that's not a real popular word. And I know that it is real popular to hear, we don't have to suffer because Christ suffered for us. Isn't this great? Well, it is, but I also read that in the last days, men will come along following teachers who say things they want to hear rather than what is true. And he made his life a guilt offering. It, it's no coincidence that he, was, that he was crucified over Passover during that time. His sacrifice came during Passover. He, he was the Passover lamb. It served the function of, of a guilt offering, which saves from death. And then it says in verse 10, I love this because of what it said earlier on, he will see his offspring. Oh, I thought he didn't have any offspring. Well, he didn't have any natural offspring. It says over in John chapter 1, verses uh, 12 and 13, to all who received him, to as many as believed on his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of a natural descent, nor of a human decision, nor of a husband's will, but born of God. We're all special children because we were born in a special way. Verse 10 goes on to say he will, he will prolong his days. I thought he got killed. Yeah, he did. And he got resurrected as well. And 700 years before it happened, Isaiah said that it was going to happen. And verse 10 goes on to say that the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Well, what is the will of the Lord? Second Peter chapter 3 verse 9 says, the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And the only way that that will can prosper was through what he did. And then in verse 11, after the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. Which reminds me of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy... That was set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame. Later on in verse 11, it says, by 
his knowledge, and literally that can be, that literally what it says is by knowledge of him, many will be justified. And of course, that's exactly how it happens. Galatians 2.16, we know that a man is justified not by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And in verse 12, I just, for verse 12, I just put the whole thing up there because I don't know what else to say about it. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. We could talk about that. He will divide the spoils with the strong. Because he poured out his life unto death, he was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sins of many. He made intercession for the transgressors. We have a, a high priest who is able to make intercession for us because he understands us. When I was uh, in my mid-20s and I was running from the Lord, what brought me to the Lord was being convinced that the Bible was undeniably true. I mean, I, I came to a place in my life Right. And it, and it had to do with, it had to do with prophecy. It wasn't this prophecy. It had to do with things that were going on in the world. And, um, maybe one of these days I'll do a series on that, but it brought me to a place where I went, oh boy, this, this is true. <laughs> and so since I know it's true and I know that I'm not living my life based on the word of God, and I know that I'm running from the word of God, then I'm basing my life on a lie, aren't I? And so I ultimately came to the place where I had to decide either I either go for the truth or I don't. And I don't knowing that I've walked away from it. And that was what brought me back to the Lord. Jesus says over in John 17, 17, your word is truth. Prophecy isn't just about what's going to happen. There are times in the Bible where, especially in the book of Daniel, where the prophecy is so accurate. It's just so amazing that those who are unbelievers and those who would tear down go into it and they go, well, you know, it says it was written by Daniel and it says it was written way back then, but it actually was written several hundred years later. So they would know what was going on. And it's not really prophecy. It's just history pretending to be prophecy. Uh, they're liars, but and, and, well, some of them are liars. Some of them just are just deceived themselves. Uh, this was clearly written 700 years before Christ came. It clearly nails so many things that happened in Messiah. Things that were totally unexpected. Not only in Isaiah's day, but totally unexpected in Christ's day. And yet they happen. Bam, 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 bam. The word of God is true. You can either base your life on it or you can walk away from it going, I know I'm living a lie and I don't care. Would you stand with me? Those who are going to minister to people come forward this morning. (laughs) I know there weren't a lot of laughs in this in this sermon today and and that's that's okay i mean i love laughing and i and i love bringing sermons that everybody 
laughs and has a great time. But hopefully this is the kind of thing that maybe some of you will... Somebody here, for somebody here, and maybe for several somebody's here, this will be a sermon that you will not be able to escape. Not be able to get away from. Uh, if you need prayer this morning, if there's anything that you need prayer for, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, we certainly invite you to come. But if there's any area of your life that you need prayer in right now, uh, the same, the same God who anointed Isaiah to say all of these amazing things about what was going to happen to Messiah 700 years later is the same God who's present here right now. And he says, if you'll cry out to me, I'll hear and I'll answer. So whatever you need, if you need prayer for something today, you come forward. We're going to worship for just a few moments. We'll wait for you. Uh, don't need to come you worship because that creates an atmosphere which the holy spirit can move on the lives of those who do need to come